I'm so excited to discuss today how to utilize small groups to facilitate on-shift teaching. We're going to discuss tools for success and the do's and don'ts of on-shift teaching. Two expert educators in this style of teaching are Drs. Colin Danko and Samuel Parnell. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Yeah, my name is Colin Danko, and I am an assistant professor of emergency medicine at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. I am also the assistant clerkship director for the emergency medicine clerkship. Hey, everybody, and my name is Sam Parnell. I'm also an assistant professor of emergency medicine at UT Southwestern and an assistant program director for the emergency medicine residency program here at UT Southwestern. And my name is Cassie Mackey. I'm a former medical education fellow, currently an assistant professor at UMass. My focus is simulation, so small group learning is near and dear to my heart, and I'm the host for this talk. First things first, why do you use small group discussions? Small group interaction really helps stimulate student learning by integrating new information into existing knowledge. Small groups also help with global understanding and improve long-term retention. And small group discussions improve learner participation and engagement. And discussion is an easy and natural way to apply, analyze, and evaluate material for a deeper understanding of the topic. Furthermore, everyone, learners and facilitators alike, really enjoy small group discussions. They are generally low stress, high yield, collegial, and collaborative ways to learn. I would agree with that wholeheartedly. When is most appropriate to use small groups? Small groups are helpful in a variety of settings. However, they are most effective when there is some basic knowledge and familiarity with the content being discussed. And discussing the nuances of high-risk EKG patterns and syncope could be a good small group discussion activity, but it's not helpful if the learners don't even know what a P-wave or a QRS complex or an AV block is. And they must have some basic comprehension of the topic to actively participate, ask questions, and discuss. That's why introductory topics or foundational core content material may be better for didactic lectures, such as EKG 101. You know, furthermore, a facilitator should ensure the learners are in a good spot to stop what they are doing and engage in a group discussion. I remember times as a resident when I was behind and I had a procedure to do, but an attending wanted to discuss stuff, and I really wasn't paying attention because I was worried about being behind. Yeah, that's a great point, Colin. Also, ideally, small group discussions on shift are focused, they cover less material than a normal lecture, and they're guided by questions and answers in communication that is mentored by the facilitator. Small group discussions are extremely helpful in a variety of contexts, including, but not limited to, things like procedural teaching, interesting cases, imaging or EKG review, running the board, signing out patients, literature review, insight to sim, role-playing, or problem-based learning. You do need time and space for a real group discussion, but the time can be relatively short and flexible. You don't have to block off a 30-minute or one-hour chunk of time or schedule a group discussion on shift. You can have an effective group discussion in only five or 10 minutes on shift. And additionally, the space that you hope to host the group discussion is flexible and can happen in a variety of locations like a physician desk, an empty patient room, a physician lounge, an office, or a lecture hall. I completely agree with both of you that it's super important that the learners are in a good, safe space to be able to take in all the information. And I do love that group discussions are flexible. What are the characteristics and techniques of a good facilitator? The overarching goal of the facilitator is to encourage and guide learner participation, discussion, and help foster a deeper understanding of the material, including things like application, analysis, and evaluation of knowledge. Good group discussion leaders are passionate about learning. They're confident and knowledgeable, but also humble and approachable. 
they understand and acknowledge their own limitations and they're comfortable with ambiguity and uncertainty, which I think we all are, or we have to be as ER doctors, right? Uncertainty is kind of the name of the game. Now I try to keep up the literature as best I can. However, I sometimes don't know the answer and that's okay and it's completely understandable. Medicine is too vast a topic for everyone to know everything. The research and scientific knowledge is changing so rapidly that I learn something new all the time. I tell students and residents that I still open up MRAP Corpendium, MDCalc, UpToDate, WikiEM, all these references on shifts that I can reference, refresh my knowledge, and learn something new when I take care of patients. I say, hey, if I don't know it, we can look it up together and then we can find out the answer. It's also important to foster an environment where learners, especially medical students and interns, are comfortable with not always knowing the answer or being wrong. You know, I feel like a lot of the time when my attempts at small group teaching on shift are starting slow, it's because the learners are afraid to say a wrong answer. And it's okay and completely expected that learners don't know everything. This is a group discussion, not a test. So this kind of goes along with the part where Sam was talking about being the facilitator being okay not knowing everything. I always tell the learners that I hope they are wrong or don't know the answer to a question because if they already know everything we're talking about, we're wasting our time. I like that idea of not having to know all of the answers up front and reminding the learners that we don't expect them to have all the answers either. Do you do any preparation to be ready to lead these small group discussions? I know I recently attended a course on simulation and language. We learned how important it is in our discussions. Yeah, we can go over some uh, techniques to master for group discussions. Um, and these include content preparation, questioning, restraint, brainstorming, summarizing, patience, and calm. So for content preparation, you know, the facilitators should obviously be knowledgeable about the content that they're discussing. And this helps the faculty to lead the discussion and to improve the talking points. However, group leaders don't have to be content experts and acknowledging limitations is an important part of psychological safety. Yeah, and questioning is a really important part of these group discussions. You know, facilitators should ask focused questions with the goal of pushing the learner's knowledge base to get them thinking and to foster group discussion. Sometimes I ask, what if you were at a rural ED? You didn't have consultant coverage like OBGYN or ortho. What if the patient also had a fever, right? Their presentation plus something else, plus fever, plus immuno, plus trauma. You know, what if the patient doesn't respond to your first line management? So that keeps the discussion on track and keeps them talking. It encourages everyone to, to participate. And sometimes you can call people out by name if someone isn't participating or someone else is dominating the conversation. What do you think, Jackie? Hey, thanks, Peter. That's a great point. What do you think, Steve? The restraint is also a really important part of group discussions. Facilitators need to know when to talk and guide the conversation and when to be quiet and not answer or not provide additional information. Remember, this is a group discussion, not a lecture. This is sometimes the hardest part of the group dynamic, and it's one of the hardest parts for me. We want the learners to get the key teaching points, and as ER doctors, we're busy and we're impatient and we want to get to the point, right? So we occasionally try to bypass this group discussion and get right to the teaching points. However, that process of discussion, conversation, questioning, and answers is far more important than just the clinical portals that are imparted. Silence is not always a bad thing, especially when people are thinking. We need to be comfortable with a little bit of silence, at least for a short time. These aren't pimping sessions. You have to try to remember that group discussion is a group discussion, and you have to ask the group or specific people what they think instead of just answering it yourself. Understanding group dynamics and encouraging conversation is much more important than simply answering every question or providing a personal antidote for every point. 
summarizing is also really important. Um, taking the time to summarize intermittently can uh, emphasize main points and kind of regain the group's attention, you know, can help achieve moments of greater understanding and keep the group on track. Um, brainstorming is also really important. You can ask the group uh, to brainstorm ideas for their differential diagnoses, uh, for management, for next steps, um, also previous experiences that they've had, and make sure you're using open-ended questions so that uh, people have time to answer. Um, patience and calm is also very important. Facilitators should be passionate and energetic, but not rushed or anxious or frustrated. And the tenor should be conversational, but professional. The atmosphere should be a calm learning environment, a safe and where it's okay to make mistakes and not know the answer. It's much better to make mistakes talking through a hypothetical case compared to making a mistake in a real life patient that you're taking care of. Those are all excellent points. I know I also struggle with the restraint aspect and having silence when I'm super excited about a topic and just want to keep going through it. How do you find the time on a busy shift and where do you generally lead these discussions? Do you bring along a whiteboard, use a piece of paper, have printed out materials, or is everything through voice alone? Yeah, this is one of the biggest challenges in medical education, especially in the ED. We don't have much time, space, or privacy. And it commonly feels like there are a never-ending supply of ill, undifferentiated patients in the waiting room that really need to be seen. You know, I know at our shop, it's not uncommon for there to be 50 or even 100 patients in the waiting room at all times. However, the beauty of small group discussions is that they can be short, focused, and happen while you're doing normal patient care activities. Small group discussions may only be five to 10 minutes, especially when they occur on shift. And again, they can occur at the physician lounge, at patient room, or just right outside in the hallway. Yeah, some examples of good topics uh, include going through central line insertion techniques right before doing the procedure. You can discuss the procedure itself, use an example kit to go over the equipment, you know, things like that. When you're running the list, uh, it's a good idea to bring up one or two discussion points about interesting patients. So if you have a patient with a PE, you say, you know, what would we do if they decompensated right now? Or, you know, what findings might we see on a point of care ultrasound? And when you're reviewing x-rays, you can you know, obviously go over fractures like a Collie's fracture and discuss the management, what kind of splint you would use, and how would our management change if this was an open fracture? If you have interesting patients, like a shingles patient, you could bring up questions like, why did they develop shingles? Are they HIV? Do they have immunocompromise? Discuss the treatment. Then also discuss things like, what if the rash was on their face and they had conjunctival injection with blurry vision and eye pain instead? You know, as far as using materials goes, I don't necessarily bring prepared materials to utilize during these discussions. You know, I find that these sessions tend to be more spontaneous and based on the patients that we are actively treating. Now, there are certainly times where a whiteboard or even just a piece of paper can be helpful to draw out diagrams or list out differentials, but these aren't necessarily required. I love that this format of teaching is more spontaneous. And, you know, I tend to personally remember things better when they're associated with a patient. So using, you know, interesting patients or using the list that you currently have is super useful. How do you start the discussion? Well, it's a good idea to start by making sure you're getting oriented and everybody's familiar. So introduce yourself and the other learners. Make sure you're using names, uh, what their role is, uh, maybe special interests that they have within emergency medicine. Uh, it's also important to diagnose your learner. So knowing the level of training, uh, their experiences, their baseline knowledge of the topic that you're going to discuss. Obviously, it's important to arrange the setting and select the material you're going to discuss. But it's also important to set expectations. You know, So set clear goals and learning objectives. Make sure you're normalizing the knowledge gaps and that it's okay to not know everything. You know, Ask for participation and feedback. 
As far as size goes, ideally we're talking about five to eight people, but smaller groups of even two to four can be effective as long as all members are encouraged to actively participate. I commonly have group discussions with an intern and an upper level resident when on shift. These can be very beneficial discussions within a significant amount of learning when everyone contributes and participates. Yeah, that's a great point, Colin. You know, these group sizes can be big or small, but the main thing is making sure everyone participates. And along those lines, don't forget to include other staff and ED team members in small group discussions. You may only have one to two physicians on shift available, but there are frequently nurses, techs, respiratory therapists, and other staff who can join in the conversation and convey important perspectives and teaching points, especially when the cases involve teamwork, like debriefing after a resuscitation or a code. You can also break larger groups down into subgroups for smaller discussions or partial segments. We want everyone to participate, but also not constantly be put on the spot or made to talk and answer. And asking an initial question that is kind of an entry-level novice question can really be good for discussion, and that can encourage participation. Again, later on, you can ask those what-if questions, right? Probing for the limit of understanding, the next steps, the complications, resources. But that first question, usually I kind of let it be a low-ball, you know, slow-ball answer, right? Something very easy that kind of gets everyone involved. And as a leader, remember, you're facilitating the conversation. You want to make sure everyone stays on task, helps summarize intermittently, and then assess the discussion. I think those are all excellent points. And I love the idea of including other staff and ED team members since we all work so closely. And even in the community sites that I work at, oftentimes it'll be a faculty discussion, but also including the nursing staff and the techs and everybody else who was involved in these certain cases. What would you say gets in the way of a good small group discussion? Well, it's in the name, but for this to be a discussion, you need participation from everyone in the group. Also, one person being overbearing and dominating the conversation can really detract from a good learning experience. It's also important to ensure that everyone's staying on topic to make sure that you're covering the appropriate material. It isn't uncommon for us ER doctors to get distracted and go down a rabbit hole and completely losing the point of the discussion. So important ways that we can address and mitigate these problems with this group discussion is, you know, keeping the small group in the discussion, you know, making sure that everyone stays engaged and isn't getting pulled away for patient care. And if you find that someone isn't participating, it may be necessary to call them out by name and make sure you're engaging all the learners equally. In order to prevent one person from dominating the conversation, you know, including the facilitator, you know, make sure you enable others to talk. You can include subtle hints like asking for other learners for their opinions. Another technique is to thank an overbearing learner for their input and then ask another person to contribute or participate. And if you find that the group is straying off topic, you can stop to summarize what you've learned so far and then ask another relevant question to bring them back on topic. Those are great techniques to use. I know, especially other distractions getting in the way are very common working in the emergency department. How do you end these discussions? Do you tend to quiz the learners at the end or do you recap the discussion? Yeah, that's a great question. I usually don't quiz, but I do like to end the discussion with a quick recap and a summary. And I also like to thank everyone for participating, right? This is a group discussion. Everyone really hopefully was engaged and participated. And then finally, I ask if anyone has any questions that we didn't answer, things they want to talk about next time, and what are the next steps, right? We're going to go do the procedure, we're going to go take care of the next patient, or we're going to look up something and bring it back on shift next time we're together. It's also important to evaluate the learners on their preparation, participation, and performance. Feedback is really important, and sometimes you can have the learners evaluate each other, 
themselves and evaluate and provide feedback to the facilitator. You know, a lot of times I like to ask, hey, did you guys understand the key points? Is there anything I could have done better at a, as a faculty member, as an instructor, to make sure you guys understand better in the future, right? Make sure this is a good group discussion. And this is really important to improve how we educate and how we learn and how we take care of patients, right? Feedback is imperative. For feedback, I like the ask, tell, ask method. And this is asking the learner for self-reflection. Hey, how did you think that went? What did you think about that procedure? Or what did you think about that case? Telling your observations, right? So giving objective things that you saw and saying, this is what I saw, right? This is what I, I observed. And then asking for understanding for the learner. And then after that, kind of next steps to improve, making sure that things are specific and actionable and behavior oriented. That makes perfect sense to me. Can you give a real life example of when you recently used small group discussions on shift? Sure. I, I was working a busy overnight shift recently with two interns and one upper level resident. And we had a patient with a pretty large peritonsillar abscess and it needed to be drained. The third year resident had performed peritonsillar abscess incision and drainage in the past, but neither of the interns had. So this was a great opportunity for a group discussion amongst the three of us about the procedure, or four of us, should I say. First, I assessed the baseline knowledge and the comfort level of the group members. So again, the third year resident had knowledge and some experience with the procedure, but the two interns really didn't know much about the peritonsillar abscess and how to manage them. So I first had all the learners watch a video and review a procedure guide on peritonsillar abscess, needle incision, and drainage. Again, I wanted to ensure they had baseline knowledge about the procedure. I wanted to make sure that we were all oriented and that I diagnosed my learner, right? And so by diagnosing my learner, I knew that the interns really needed a little bit more baseline knowledge before we could really discuss the peritonsillar abscess procedure and the next steps. I then, after they watched the video, I asked them to grab me when they had some spare time to do a group discussion about the procedure and go through the steps. And I wanted to ensure that the timing and the environment was right for a group discussion, right? I didn't want to pull them away. If they had a septic patient that was crumping, or if they had five new patients to see, including one that was critical, right? I wanted to make sure they grabbed me whenever there was a good time for this discussion. I then met with the interns and the third year resident at the physician desk outside the room and had the interns describe the procedure. I asked them questions about indications, contraindications, the supplies, the technique, the follow-up, and potential complications. And then I also asked the upper level if he had any pearls and pitfalls from prior experience. And this really helped guide the discussion, and we talked about it as a group. Then I asked a few what-if questions. You know, what could you do if the patient was really nervous and they really didn't tolerate the procedure? Or what if there was significant bleeding or a lot of purulent drainage from the incision site? What could you do, right? I was probing for that next level of knowledge to say, what could you do if something bad happened, right? I need suction ready. I need to make sure the patient has analgesia, maybe sedation, you know, need to manage their airway if things go south. And then finally, I asked the interns if they had any questions or anything they were worried about before the procedure. Then I had the upper level resident help the interns set up the supplies and ask the interns to go through the steps out loud. The resident then provided correction and feedback, and I jumped in which when I was needed, which truthfully was pretty minimal. The, the resident really did a good job of providing correction and feedback, and it was really a discussion, a collegial discussion. And before the interns performed the procedure, I gave them a code word for when they needed help or when I was going to step in for a safety concern, right? And that code word I usually like to use is a first name, right? So they could say, hey, Sam, could you come help me with this? And that means they need help. I'm going to go help out, right? Or I could say, Kate, I'm going to go take a look, right? I'm not going to say Dr. Jones. They're not going to say Dr. Parnell. I'm going to use first name. They're going to use first name. And that is a code word for someone's going to go get help because there's a safety concern, right? 
And thankfully, the procedure went really well and the peritonsillar abscess was drained successfully. I then provided feedback outside the room. I ensured that feedback was specific, it was actionable, and it was behavior oriented. And again, I use the ask, tell, ask method for feedback. So I asked them how they thought it went, what their observations were. I told them my observations. I asked for understanding, you know, summarizing key points. And then we talked about the next steps to improve, right? So for the next procedure, we're going to do A, not B. And then one thing I always like to remember is to criticize in private and praise in public. So again, this procedure went really well. And so I gave a lot of praise for those residents in the room in front of the patient. But any sort of feedback that is critical, whether that's good or bad criticism, I want to make sure that's in private, right? On a one-on-one -on -one or one-on-two, you know, not in front of their colleagues, not in front of the patient, not in front of the other staff. And this entire process only took 15 to 20 minutes. And the nice thing is it was integrated into our normal patient care, right? So it didn't take a lot of time outside of caring for this patient. Wow, what a great example. I loved hearing about how you specifically guided the discussion based off of the knowledge of the learners. So different input for the interns versus toward the third year resident. Still, you were able to do very good patient care in addition to teach something. So that's a fantastic example. Do either of you have any other pearls of wisdom? Yeah, I think it might be a good idea to review some of the key points that we brought up today. But remember, you know, introductions and diagnosing your learner before the discussion begins are both essential components to a successful group discussion. Facilitators should be passionate about learning, confident and knowledgeable, but also humble and approachable. So understand and acknowledge that your own limitations are okay and that you have to be comfortable with ambiguity and uncertainty. You know, the goal is for the group leaders to facilitate and guide the discussion, not to take over and give a lecture or immediately give away the key points. We want to pick focused topics where learners have some degree of knowledge already. Some great potential opportunities for these group discussions include procedures, going over interesting cases, reviewing EKGs, x-rays, or ultrasounds, running the board, sign out, or going over some literature review. Yeah, and it's also important to ask those questions that probe for deeper levels of understanding. You know, ask those what-if questions. Probe for the limits of understanding, things like complications, next steps. What if you didn't have that consultant? Or what if it was a different treatment and that first-line treatment didn't work? And then when giving feedback, I always like to remember that ask-tell-ask ask method, right? So asking for self-reflection from the learner, telling your observations, asking for understanding from the learner, talking about next steps. And again, remember specific and behavior oriented. And then criticize in private, praise in public. Again, I love praising residents and students in public, but make sure if you're giving any critical feedback to do that one-on-one -on -one in private. Make sure group discussions are fun, right? These conversations about emergency medicine in the ED are natural. They don't have to be forced. They don't have to take much time or effort. And that's really one of the benefits of small group discussions on shift. Facilitator passion, humor, and energy are contagious. Small group discussions are awesome, right? This is a great way to learn on shift and to get your colleagues involved. What a perfect summary. I look forward to using all of these techniques moving forward on my next shifts. During this discussion, we touched on the reasons to utilize small group discussions, pros and pitfalls, and keys to success. Thank you to our guest hosts and you all for listening. Now go out there and educate. We are sounding off. Mm -hmm.